0: Credit card brought to you by Bank of Ireland in partnership with Air Lingus. Whether you're buying your weekly basics or splurging on a special gift with Air Credit Card, you'll collect Avios and unlock even more rewards. The only credit card in Ireland that gives you travel rewards as you spend. Sign up now by searching Bank of Ireland Air Credit Card and go from tap to takeoff. Bank of Ireland, begin. Over 18s only. Acceptance criteria, lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. Subject to a monthly fee of €7.99 and annual government stamp duty of €30. Euro. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.
1: Alive and Kicking
0: with Claire McKenna.
1: This is News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com, or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, science journalist James Nestor was just over a bout of pneumonia when a GP friend suggested a breath class might help. He went along a cynic, but his experience there was a catalyst to the exploration of how powerful our breathing really can be. And he's here to tell us what he discovered and his book, Breath, the new science of a lost art. And I'll also be joined by dietitian Sarah Kio to bust some food myths and why So many of us choose a fad over basic, simple dietary advice. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I think in the lead up to a break, certainly for me, it causes my body and senses to break down. Have you ever seen the clip of the two marathon runners who are trying to make it over the finish line, but their legs are jelly? I'm a little bit like that, trying to get to the end of the working week before clocking off for a week. We are heading first vacation in Ireland and I want to turn my phone off. I want to throw it in a drawer and I want to not go near it. I mean, it's not like I'm the CEO of a multinational corporation or anything like it. But I do find lately everything from my work responsibilities, not the actual job like this here now, but the life admin that goes with it. And even social media scrolling is draining me at the moment and it's time to go and refill my cup. But I, this week I kind of looked at the reopening of gyms and how my routine, even though there are classes there for me to go to and a gym fully open, I have not gone back to my full routine. And I wonder, will I ever get back to that I don't have the I do this on a Monday, I do this on a Tuesday and this is my Friday anymore. I'm sure it's not the consistency that is required. But if Tokyo taught me anything, it's that I'm not an athlete, nor will I ever be. So I tend to just tune in to how I feel on a particular day. And I try to answer really honestly whether or not I need to go and exercise in that way. So one day I felt tired, but I pushed on to my spin class and actually it was the best thing for me. It perked me up, it set me up for the week ahead. But another day when I couldn't keep my eyes open, even watching TV, I headed to bed for 8pm and that was the best thing too. And I don't really go in for signs of the Zodiac or anything like that, but I do hold a lot in how we operate with the seasons. So some of it's a no-brainer that we are out and about more now in the summer when it's warmer and brighter, longer. And then we start to naturally do less as the temperatures drop and though I'm dreading it, it gets dark at four o'clock. And I think I want to spend the latter part of this year consciously resting and rebuilding. I think we've been through it quite a lot. I know that sounds like a Gwyneth Paltrow type statement with the conscious uncoupling, but I know what it means to me Kind of. I think there's four months or so left of this year and I'm a little jaded, which doesn't sit well with me or suit me. So I'm going to focus on resting and not striving and revisit future plans in January. Sometimes I wish we could make like the bears and literal hibernation was an option. But I will start with a week in Claire recharging my batteries and report back. You can email the show newstalk.com. So it sounds strange, but food can get confusing, particularly in the online world. There's a real mix of advice out there. But I think as with everything, you need to be very careful where you're getting that advice from. So I have invited in Sarah Keogh, founder of Eat Well. Um, Uh, she is a dietitian, to ask her about some of the myths and food fads that we hear about and try and bust them a little bit. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Good. And you? Certainly on your Instagram page, this is very much a part of your content, kind Mm -hmm. of putting the facts out there and blasting some of what's around there. Do you feel like you're constantly fighting against misinformation in a way?
2: I think it's more challenging in correcting it because I think people are bombarded with so much information that if someone doesn't come along and go, actually, that's not accurate or that's exaggerated or that's just plain wrong, people won't know any different. And I think for me, a lot... Um, A lot of what I would talk about say on Instagram would be from a lot of workplace wellness talks that I would do. So I would do a huge amount. um, And you're just talking to so many different people in so many different sort of environments. And just the questions that come up out of that are really what feed into what I might talk about. So if people are worried about sugar or gluten or, you know, all the dairy, the different things that come up. And I suppose when I would do those kind of talks and you see the questions people have, you can just see the enormous confusion that's out there.
1: And it's interesting because I said to my producer, Simon, you know, let's maybe ask Sarah, um, you know, she's a dietitian. These are the lists that, you know, I I think, but ask her because obviously she's a bit more in the know. And pretty much the ones I had mentioned that we'll get into now were on your hit list. It's Mm. what you're saying now. We're hearing dairy, gluten, sugar all of the time.
2: Well, that's it. And it's something kind of, I think, has a five year run usually of being kind of the big baddie but it bubbles away for a long time and then it just rears up again every so often so there's so many myths about different things and as you said like the the things about dairy that come up and then you know the gluten and all of those they just go round and round and round um, and you know I think a new generation discovers them or a new group of people join Instagram or whatever it is and suddenly they're like wow you know because I have to say you know I'm, I'm fairly recent on Instagram but I have to say when I start searching the nutrition hashtag it frightened the life out of me um, and I had to actually unfollow it <laughs> it was just some crazy crazy things on there you know.
1: Wow okay well let's get into it then a little bit. What about dairy? Um, It has been associated with kind of being mucus forming and that your skin will transform. It's even been put together with talk of cancer, Mm. that, you know, there's hormones in it, that it's just a very dangerous thing. And obviously we see the proliferation of plant-based milks, which could be chosen for a variety of reasons. But milk is getting quite a bad rap.
2: And it really doesn't deserve it. Um, You know, and I mean, I could spend all day talking about the dairy. So you mentioned hormones. So in some countries they are allowed to use hormones to produce milk which are actually banned in the European Union. So European milk doesn't have these hormones. So, you know, it depends on where you're getting your information from. But we have huge studies across the world showing that dairy very clearly does not cause cancer. And one of the biggest studies is called EPIC which is the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer. And they have tracked over half a million people across Europe for the last 25 years. They are, looking at what foods are linked with cancer so this is where we talk about processed meat and cancer that kind of information has come out of that study a lot of the the talk about fruit and vegetables really reducing cancer has come out of this study and they have very clearly found no link between dairy and cancer with the exception of colon cancer where if you actually drink milk you get less colon cancer than people who avoid it so, And that's one of many studies showing that dairy absolutely, definitely doesn't cause cancer. But that is a myth I come up against time and time again um, when it comes with it. And a recent study in the States found no link with dairy and breast cancer. And they actually found, they think, a reduction in fermented dairy products and breast cancer. So, you know, there's there's more work to be done. But, you know, some of the things that you hear about dairy, I don't know where it comes from.
1: And yeah, it was another dietitian, Orla Walsh, a couple of years back here on the show that really made me stop I was ordering an almond latte an oat latte because it became the the trendy thing to do Mm. and I do enjoy the taste of it but when she was talking about some of the components in it like iodine and you know the importance for our bones particularly in women you know you make these trendy and inverted commas choices without really thinking of the impact on your health and sometimes think, and
2: I love Orla's point on that because the iodine has been the huge issue because what most, most people don't realise with dairy is that iodine is actually one of the big nutrients you get from it people always think calcium um, and iodine is so important for brain development of babies during pregnancy it's actually become a very big issue for pregnancy because of that in Ireland and we're already a bit borderline with um, iodine anyway so the last thing we need is people actually reducing their iodine intake and most people don't think about that when they are looking at the plant-based milks and calcium as well I mean plant-based milks don't naturally have a whole lot of calcium so you have to make sure if you're switching to those that you have a calcium fortified one um you know and I just I rarely see someone who doesn't take dairy actually get to their calcium targets it's very very rare and it's taught it can be done um but I don't see people actually making it
1: and I was another one of these people that would be choosing a plant-based milk in my coffee but I'd be having cheese on my pizza yeah You know, so there is a lot of that going on. Why do we need all dairy not just milk in our diet
2: Um, The big one is for bones and calcium and you know the dairy is a really good source of calcium but it's also a really good source of absorbable calcium because I sometimes see people saying well you know green veg has it and it's fantastic and yes it does but you don't absorb a fraction of the amount of calcium from green vegetables that you will say from milk and that's the thing I see a lot you know people say to me well you know I have three leaves of spinach in my sandwich at lunchtime that's my calcium and I'm like no 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 no." you know three bags of spinach from the supermarket is kind of where you want to begin Daily Um, Daily. well I'd always talk about this it's 16 servings of broccoli a day um, to actually get your calcium so when people say to me I'm getting it from my green veg you're not your green veg can be a top up but you absolutely have to be getting either the calcium fortified plant based milk or the actual dairy in somewhere now you will there's a couple of other foods tin sardines of all things are actually a really good source of calcium so there's other places to get it but what I find is when people cut out the dairy they really don't realise um, how much they're cutting out their calcium and the potential damage they're doing to their bones later on
1: Let's talk about sugar then. Um, It's every parent's battle is against sugar. And we just hear that it's so bad on the system. And again, with the alternatives, you get this impression that coconut sugar is a much better thing (laughs) to do or that, you know, to buy a soft drink that has zero sugar. I mean, it's still sweet. It's still, I assume, having the same effect on the blood sugar.
2: No, um, in fairness, the soft drinks won't be having the same effect on the blood sugar. They don't have the sugar at all. So they're not there. And that's why they're often used as an option, say, for someone who's trying to control their diabetes.
1: Really without? So sweeteners don't do the same thing? No, not at all. Wow, that is positive news.
2: So it's good. I mean, lots of people have issues around sweeteners as well. And I think we could do a whole day on that too. But um, in terms of sugar, I mean, there's so much scaremongering. And it's the only way I could describe it with sugar. I mean, we definitely do need to look at reducing sugar. But I hear people talking about it causes diabetes and it causes heart disease and it causes all of this. Really, the one thing sugar actually does to us that's bad is teeth. And that's the big, big thing. But the reason we don't hear a lot about that is because everybody knows sugar's bad for your teeth. So nobody's clicking on that headline or clicking on that post. So we have to try and make it exciting. So yeah, we could do with reducing sugar, but I see people getting very, very scared of sugar and you don't need to be. It is not toxic. It's not poisonous. Now, if you're taking tons of it, there is an issue. But when we look at studies, particularly where children are eating huge amounts of sugar and we're seeing things like hyperactivity and all the rest, what we now know is it's not that the sugar is causing it. It's that if you're eating that much junk food, that many sweets, that much chocolate, you're not eating the fish and the nuts and the seeds and the whole grains that are actually giving you the brain important nutrients, you know, like, you know, the zinc and the magnesium. So that it's actually what we call a junk food diet, that it's lacking nutrition rather than the sugar being the problem. Mm. In saying that, that, we just need to reduce it. It's really bad for teeth. And I'm not being dismissive of that because teeth are actually so important. Um, But we do need to limit it. But we're finding in studies and research in Ireland, and we've big national children's studies on that, that sugar is going down. Um, but what we don't need to cut out is the fruit. We don't need to cut out milk. We don't need to cut out yogurt. You know, even fruit yogurt is fine. There's a very big difference between the one teaspoon of added sugar in a strawberry yogurt and the 12 teaspoons of added sugar in a bottle of soft drink.
1: And what about the hidden sugars? Like I, I imagine the sugar in everything now from sliced pan to cereals in well, the morning.
2: I suppose for me, I, I always think the hidden sugar is a bit of a, a, an unfair thing because it's on the label. And it's there and it's written. And if you have a look and I think putting a little bit of sugar into something like if I make brown bread, I always put honey in it. And, you know, you might argue it's hidden, but it's not doing any harm, like a little bit of honey that's in that. So I think we have to separate out someone putting a spoonful of honey or a spoonful of sugar on their porridge in the morning and someone else drinking, you know, three cans of soft drink a day. They're, They're two very, very different things. And, you know, all of the guidelines around sugar, even the strictest will tell you around seven teaspoons of added sugar a day is fine. So it's not that we have to ban it. We can never have a sweet or, a, you know, a bar of chocolate or anything like that. But it's more just, are you, is everything sugary? Is everything sugar-coated? You know, I, I often laugh, someone was arguing with me about, you know, sugar-coated cereals have being full of sugar. And I was like, it literally says on the front of it, it's a sugar-coated cereal. I don't know how that's hidden sugar. Um, yeah, and as you
1: say, it's not that that's bad. It's if you're only eating that, what are you not eating? That's yes. the issue. And you never really hear that message, yeah. to be honest. And you're very much into... The idea of not categorizing foods into good mm. and bad that, yes, we can have a, a biscuit. Yes, we can have a slice of cake. You know, you don't have to demonize food exactly. because it just creates an unhealthy relationship.
2: And that, and I think that's the thing that bothers me the most when I when I'm talking to groups and you see people who are genuinely very stressed and very anxious about what they're eating. And you're thinking, how have we come to that? Where people are frightened to eat, or feeling guilty about eating, or you know, and you're thinking it's a bar of chocolate. You know, you didn't run over a dog, or you know, it's it's okay. Um, you know, and I think it's I for me the focus is always what you add in. What what is it you actually add in? If you add in your fruit, your veg, your nuts, your seeds, your fish, all of those really really good foods, you know that you're getting your proteins in. If you then have the treat foods, which are lovely, it's fine. It's if that's all that you're doing, we're going to have a problem. And it's not that, as I said, the sugar as such is bad. It's that you're not eating all the other good things.
1: Uh, what about um, carbs then? Do you think we have started to embrace carbs a little bit oh, more? Yeah. They're not quite getting the rap that they did in, in, in the naughties.
2: I mean, that was the big thing was the carbs were evil and bad and so on. And, you know, I, I, it's funny when you're a dietitian and half your friends are dietitians, you're just groaning at the next thing. And it's like, OK. And I think what happened is people mixed up carbs and very refined carbs and, you know, really high carb foods like maybe crisps and chips and things like that with your really healthy whole grains. And they're so completely different. You know, if you look at sugar and you know it's it's a carbohydrate but if you eat that that's all you get there's nothing else in there but if you go for something like a whole grain bread or you've brown rice or something the nutrition there is very different because you have the fiber and you have the magnesium and the copper and there's a little bit of iron in there and there's all of those nutrients that it's a completely different food and even how it's handled in the body is a little bit different as well so I definitely I'm seeing people less frightened of carbs in the last while and you know I always love people saying well you know I lost so much weight when I cut out the carbs and I was going you know you really reduced your fat as well and like no no I reduced the carbs and it's like right because you cut out the carbs you also cut out the chips and you also cut out the butter on the bread and you know you also cut out all of those carbs fried in fats which we really like um so it's it's both actually went down when you look at most people.
1: And we do need them, don't we, for our energy, for our brain development.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing is you can get by without carbs. Um, so there's a treatment for epilepsy called the ketogenic diet, which was developed to treat epilepsy. And it's a diet that just has no carbs on it. Now, it's it's a very difficult diet to do well. I do meet lots of people tell me they've gone keto and they absolutely have not. What they've done is cut carbs down a little bit. But a ketogenic diet very specifically for treatment of epilepsy works. And, you you know, that that can go, but it's tough. But our body does like carbohydrate for fuel. Your brain in particular does need some glucose every day. So even if you're on a ketogenic diet, we know that the ketone supply the, you know, the maybe half of the energy for the brain and then you've got to actually generate some glucose in the body anyway to fuel the other half. Your kidneys need glucose and so on. Now, as I said, you, you can get by with a carbohydrate, but I think that's a very difficult way to go and it's not necessary. And what I find particularly with the carbs is most people are eating portions of carbs that are just way too big.
1: Where do you stand on the whole plant-based movement? It's, I mean, pe- people are doing it for environmental reasons. People are doing it for animal welfare reasons. People are doing it just because they want to up their... Veg intake, but where do you stand on it?
2: Well, in fairness, as a dietitian, and if you look at what we've all worked at over the years, even look at the food pyramid, it's heavily plant based and always has been. So that's not new to any of us that we want people eating more plant foods. We know that three servings of whole grain whole grains a day are really good for you. We know that five to seven servings of fruit and veg a day are good for you. Um, and there's always been advice even when it comes to protein. Yes, you have the meat, but also no harm to mix in your vegetarian dishes. So that's been a message actually quietly from dietitians for a very, very long time. And um, some work by the British Dietetic Association, they were looking at nutrition and sustainability. And when they calculated out the whole carbon dioxide aspect of it, that actually following the food pyramid guidance, or as it is in, in the in the, the UK, the, the plate is actually second only to a fully vegan diet in terms of reducing um, carbon dioxide and that's including things like dairy and um, meat and it's, it's a Blue Dot report is their report and it was just a really interesting piece of work because we do eat more um, animal foods than is actually recommended um, from the sort of the, the national population guidelines so we, you know we've been on that for years you know if someone wants to entirely cut out meat absolutely fine there's plenty of ways to go around it but you know I don't think people have to um, with that and I think we do get some important nutrients especially from fish which are very, very difficult to get somewhere else. The types of omega-3 in fish really don't show up in plant foods. You might get a tiny bit in seaweed, but it's just not enough. And we do need that for brain health throughout the life cycle. So both brain development in pregnancy, but also for maintaining and helping to reduce things like dementia in old age. So I think we need to be very careful before we cut all of the animal foods out of the diet, because I think a lot more work needs to be done on that.
1: Yeah. And supplements, do you think that's enough enough?
2: Um, Supplements will really help and definitely if someone is on a fully fully plant-based diet they really do need to make sure they're supplementing with vitamin D and definitely with vitamin B12. Now a lot of foods are fortified with those there as well and what I find actually quite scary these days is a lot of people will argue oh we don't need these supplements or it's a perfectly healthy diet and you're like Everyone in Ireland needs a vitamin D supplement for a start, but meat eaters will at least get a little bit of vitamin D from things like meat and eggs, which just isn't there on um on a vegan diet. So it's one I would always say to people, you need your B12, you need your vitamin D. But, you know, we might also look at some of B vitamins because we know on a fully plant based diet, overall B vitamin levels do fall. And research we have now looking at how at brain ageing, how important B vitamins actually are to prevent um kind of the ageing or delay the ageing of the brain. So I think it's one of those things we'll, we'll have to have all these studies over the next 30, 40 years to see what happens in terms of the brain development from some of the nutrients that are missing.
1: Do you think that when it comes to food and dietary advice, we want the fad, we want the quick fix, we want to be told go keto and you'll never look back. Mm. Instead of what you said, sit down and look at the national guidelines. It just doesn't sound as sexy.
2: But that's the, that's exactly it. It doesn't sound sexy. And, you know, I was there a while ago. Someone said to me, would you not write a book on nutrition? And I said, be wasting my time to write a book on nutrition because no one would read it. It would just be sensible, you know, because people want the drama. And, you know, we believe the bad stuff faster um but i also think you know sometimes people are bored and you know it's it's something new to do or something new to try or something different but i also think and from a long time working in clinics is people who struggle particularly with weight do get desperate and the way that we treat people who are overweight in this country the weight stigma it's it's very bad and i can understand someone being desperate and what we don't tend to have is patience for it um and it's difficult to lose weight um you know with it and I think sometimes people are so desperate for the quick fix they are so desperate for some you know when someone says you can lose 10 pounds in a week doing this they're going like, great whereas you know the reality is you're going to take you a year to change your eating habits it's going to be slow you will gain a little bit of weight sometimes and then it will come off again and um, but it's hard for people to get into that because I think we have this instant result mentality with a lot of things Um, you know if you if you take your painkiller your headache goes away quite quickly but with nutrition it's going to take a lot longer and I think sometimes we just need to a little bit as I said take a breath Take time, make a few small changes. Build in; it doesn't all have to be perfect overnight. And if I could get people to do one thing, it would be lose the idea that nutrition has to be perfect.
1: Yeah, you're so right, and I, you know it's something I've I've been exploring a bit more since I started on this show. Um, and I think it's a message we should get out there a little bit more. The way we talk about body image, weight Mm. loss. I mean, it's got a hashtag that we're all body positivity but you're right, somebody is overweight, there's assumptions about laziness, about the way they're eating and that it's just move more, eat less and I I don't believe that anymore it's far more complex
2: it is and you know when i look at people who are have the genes to be slim and have enough money to buy good food and have enough time to exercise giving out to people who actually don't have time and maybe are living in difficult financial circumstances and have the genes and we know that obesity 60 percent of it is genetic you know it's very easy to be judgmental and it's also very hard for someone who is struggling with obesity to look at someone who for whom it's easy. And there are people for whom it's easy. And, you know, I think we need to stop judging. And as you said, the kind of the weight stigma is a huge thing. And it actually stops people coming forward for healthcare as well. You know, I've worked with so many people who are trying to lose weight and they would have swum years ago. And I'm saying, would you not go swimming? And they're like, there's no way I would put on a swimsuit the size that I am because of the comments they would get from people in the swimming pool or even in the gym. I think that's shifting slightly. I think people are more like, well, fair play to you and to come out and do it but people are so conscious that they are going to get the negative looks and they are going to get the negative comments and I think it's it's very hard to say to someone you must exercise and then to be horrible to them when they do.
1: Well in truth most people in that swimming pool or in that gym are only concerned with their own bodies and all kinds of body shapes. I'm really surprised sometimes with people in the public eye who come out and say I've really felt horrible about my body and I'm like what you're like a TV presenter, you look amazing. You know, what are you hmm. talking about? Everybody has their, their hang ups. Have you seen a difference in people that come to clinics now or is it the same issues over and over again?
2: Um, It's fairly similar things, to be honest. Um, You know, I'm working as a dietitian 25 years now, so it's it hasn't really changed. Now, you will. I mean, you, some of the fads do show up. You will occasionally get people coming in, going to find out what their food intolerances are. And you're like, Is that. No, that's one I'd love to, <laughs> to just deal with. Like, if you have no symptoms, you haven't got a food intolerance, you know. Yeah, but it's just you're intolerant when, to that. You know, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, look, again, everybody's friend went and got, you know, these these food intolerance tests. And you can't see my hands doing the fake inverted commas while I'm sitting here. You know, and there's, you know, they think, oh, maybe I should or I could or whatever. And, and a lot of the time I'm explaining to people, actually, like, you just don't need them. You have got any symptoms. When you're eating food, you're getting no reactions, So you haven't got a food intolerance. This idea that we've all got some that we don't know about. Um, would be another fat I really, really love to see go away.
1: Yeah, it's just like we want this quick fix. I mean, I've often wanted this tablet that's just going to change oh, yeah. everything, my mood, my energy, the way I look. But until then, <laughs> let's just have simple dietary advice. Sarah Keo, dietitian, thank you so much for coming on. And you'll find Sarah at eatwell.ie. Coming up after the break, science journalist James Nestor on his book Breath, the New Science of a Lost Art.
3: Alive and kicking on News Talk.
1: We all hear from time to time about the importance of breathing for our health, whether it's in the absence with respiratory issues or simple breathing through exercise and slowly and deeply to calm ourselves down. The wellness explosion has seen people such as Wim Hof come to the fore, and I thought I knew all about it until I read the book Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, and its author, science journalist James Nestor, joins me on the line now. Hello, James. How are you?
3: I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you?
1: I'm good, James, and uh, your book is quite the insight into how essential breathing correctly is to the functioning of our body, because we have begun to talk more about breath work for, I suppose, stress reduction. And it's involved in a lot of wellness discussions, whether it's yoga or the Wim Hof method. But you take a serious deep dive into it. I suppose that's the science journalist in you, really, is it?
3: Well, that's what I'm supposed to be doing, right, to approach a subject very skeptically and then looking at all the angles and trying to piece together a story that way.
1: But it came from a personal angle. So tell us a little bit about the breathing class you went to, which, by the way, I think it's incredible that you'd even have a GP a doctor who would recommend you go to a breathing class in recovery from pneumonia, but tell us a bit about the class you ended up in.
3: Well, I had been suffering from a lot of respiratory issues. I thought I was healthy. I was eating the right foods. I was sleeping eight hours a night. I was exercising like a maniac, but I kept coming down with bronchitis and mild pneumonia and I was wheezing. And a lot of people told me that, oh, this is normal, you know, welcome to middle age. Uh, I didn't really like that reasoning. So I am friends with a doctor and she was my doctor, but she was also my friend. And she mentioned that a breathing class could possibly benefit me. And so I found one here in San Francisco, which isn't too hard of a thing to do. And I went to this class and did the introductory sessions, and they were okay, didn't do much for me. But it was several weeks after that I did a follow-up session that I had a really, really profound response that nobody could really explain. And that got me curious about where else breathing could bring us.
1: So you describe the situation in the book and, you know, like everyone else, you're kind of distracted and getting a little annoyed, which is really good to hear because it's hard (laughs) to read. Somebody have this really enlightening experience that you think you you never will. But then you settled into the breathing. And when you came to, if you will, or it ended and you opened your eyes, you were covered in sweat. And this wasn't in a very hot room.
3: That's right. Uh, It was wintertime in San Francisco, which is pretty chilly. And we were in a very drafty, old Victorian room of a Victorian house. And I had just been breathing in this rhythmic pattern, just inhaling, exhaling, doing nothing more than that. I wasn't moving at all. And I so profusely sweated. My hair was sopping wet. My T-shirt was ringing wet from just sitting in a corner of a cold room and breathing in this way and no one was denying it everyone in the class saw me and uh, I felt great even though I think people were a bit worried that I was having some sort of meltdown but when I came out of that and a few days later was asking people there are doctors in my family I know a lot of doctors nobody had a reasonable explanation they said oh you must have had a fever. Oh, you were wearing too many clothes. Oh, the room was way too hot. None of those things were true. I think they knew it. They just didn't have an answer for why breathing would elicit such a profound reaction. But as a science journalist, my job isn't to write memoirs, right? So I didn't know what to do with that story. So I just sort of kept it a secret for years and years as I looked into how breathing can affect our mind and body and tried to figure out a larger story around this.
1: And after that experience, did you begin to feel better with the the respiratory niggles you'd been feeling? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I don't like to use myself and as, as an example of like, So I did this thing, and it worked for me, so it's going to work for everyone, right? I I want to take a very scientific, objective approach. To answer your question directly, absolutely, I haven't had any pneumonia, any bronchitis. I haven't had a stuffy nose. I haven't had any of those problems since I adopted healthy breathing habits, but that isn't to say... My experience is going to be the same experience for everybody, which is why I keep that stuff very far out of my books and out of my, my magazine articles and newspaper articles. I want to look at data. I want to look at what the science says. I don't want the stuff I'm writing to be about me. I want it to be about the reader. And so that's why I spent so many years talking with leaders in the field, looking at literally hundreds and hundreds of studies and trying to figure out just how poorly we're breathing today and how healthy breathing can really help blunt so many symptoms of these modern maladies we contend with.
1: Talk to us a little bit then about the data that you go into about how we have begun to breathe incorrectly or or inefficiently.
3: So this was something that some researchers had mentioned to me very early on, when I started looking at breathing as a serious subject to pursue, to write about, my agent thought it was a terrible idea. My editor thought it was a terrible idea. My friends thought I was joking when I said, You know, I think I'm going to write a book about breathing. They said, This is the worst idea we've ever heard. But Then I started talking to anthropologists and other scientists, people who study this stuff day in, day out, and have been doing this for decades. And they told me that most modern humans are breathing improperly. And what does that mean? I'm breathing right now, you're breathing right now, we're all breathing right now if we're alive, right? I I think I'm doing it well enough, here I am alive. But they explained to me that compensation is different than health. And all you need to do is look at the human mouth, and the human sinus cavities and our airways, the past few hundred years, look at what's happened to these things, look at how they've shriveled up, how deformed they are, and you start to understand that we are indeed divorced from our most basic biological function, and that is breathing.
1: This really blew my mind, that our, our, our mouths have gotten smaller over time. And that has a lot to do with the the food we eat, that we have eaten softer food than we were designed to.
3: That's right. Um, So I I was questioning this as well. It's like, well, how, how can you prove that, that my mouth is smaller than it should be? They said, all you have to do is look at ancient skulls. And if you look at our ancestors, they all had perfectly straight teeth. You look at a skull from 5,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, 500,000 years ago, straight teeth across the board. Then go look in the mirror or look at 90% of the people on this planet. We have crooked teeth. Why do we have crooked teeth? Because our mouths have grown so small. With a small mouth, you have a smaller airway. With a smaller airway, you are much more apt to suffer from breathing problems. So it's once you see it, you can't unsee it it's just I had never heard anything like this before
1: and I, I suppose it's interesting as well that it's the only autonomic system in the body that we can actually control so it happens to our subconscious but there are things we can do to ensure we are breathing more efficiently
3: so we can't consciously control our heart rate or our stomach function digestion so many other systems in the body are circulation. But when we consciously control our breathing, we can influence all of these functions. And I can show you a little trick that one of the researchers showed me. It's whenever you inhale, your heart rate speeds up. Whenever you exhale, it slows down. And you can actually influence how your blood circulates in your body just by breathing a certain way. And if you can elicit these functions after just a few seconds, you can see how your body starts transforming by changing your breathing. You can just imagine what would happen to your body after a few days or after a few weeks or after a few months. And what we're finding is people with several chronic conditions can actually change their breathing and either blunt the symptoms of those conditions Or in some cases, reverse them and heal themselves. I know that sounds crazy, but the science is very clear on this.
1: Well, stay with me, James, because we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue this discussion with science journalist James Nestor about his book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. You're very welcome back to Alive and Kicking. And I'm talking to science journalist James Nestor about his book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art and how A personal experience in a breathing class led to him exploring this topic. James, what you kind of merge together, which I think is a really interesting way of of looking at it, you have the scientific um, and the latest research, but you also go back to ancient history. And it's almost as if science is now trying to look into and prove what was written about thousands of years ago.
3: Yes, so many of these practices that are now being studied and are being proven to be extremely effective for mental health, for physical health, for so much else in the body, they're actually thousands and thousands of years old. So our ancestors seem to know that these practices did something, right? That's why they've been around for so long. That's why there's such so many books and there's such technical details on exactly how to do these things but they didn't have ways of measuring what exactly was happening to the body and what's great about living in this day and age is we have modern technologies and a lot of these technologies people have at their houses these wearables pulse oximeters you can look at your blood pressure you can look at your heart rate you can look at the oxygen level in your bloodstream just with simple devices. And so with these new measurements, we're finding that so much of what the ancients had been talking about for thousands and thousands of years is actually true. And we know this because we can measure it. And if we can measure something, we can study it and find whether or not it works. And we're finding that these things work.
1: And anybody can do it. I I loved your chapter talking about meeting the the free divers who can hold their breath for up to five minutes, or more than that, and dive way down, whereas most of us will go down 10 foot, come back up gasping for breath. But each one of those that we may feel were born differently or, you know, just have this special gift, they said anybody can learn this. And indeed, Wim Hof very much speaks that anybody can do this. And when they were looking at how he could suppress infection, he brought a, a whole raft of people and within 10 days they were able to do the same thing so it really is something that anybody can learn
3: and this was the thing that really convinced me that I should spend so much time researching this seemingly simple seemingly mundane subject as breathing is when I was sent out on an assignment to write a magazine story about freedivers and these are people who are doing things that are supposed to be scientifically impossible. The longest breath hold is about 12 and a half minutes. Okay. These people can dive 150 meters on a single breath of air. And once you see this and you see that these people didn't start off differently than me or you or anyone else, they train their body. They train their breathing to be able to do this. And now they're doing things that are a superhero is supposed to be doing and it seems impossible and on paper it seems like there's no way a human body could withstand these pressures the stress and yet there they are doing it every day so that's when I thought okay there are people who have allowed themselves to access the power of breathing so well that they can do this thing in the water what else can breathing do for us on land what can it do for our body's heat? What can it do to heal us? What can it do for longevity? And that was really the jumping off point for me.
1: And when you say we need to breathe correctly, do we need to do that with every breath or do we need to spend 10 minutes a day sitting on a a cushion cross-legged with a candle lit and and breathe properly then?
3: (laughs) Yeah, the last thing most of us need in this day and age is something else to feel bad about or guilty about. And that is certainly not what I was trying to express in this book. The point of developing healthy breathing habits is that they become an unconscious habit after a while. So yeah, you're going to work a bit for the first few weeks, maybe even a couple of months to acclimate yourself to breathe properly because so many of us are breathing dysfunctionally. But once you do that, it just becomes your default. And that's what this is all about. You're not supposed to be walking around with a notepad or wearing all these different wearables and looking at your, your blood work, all this stuff that I did. Don't be a neurotic about it. It's, it's first about what learning what healthy breathing habits are, what they can actually do for the body and the brain, and then how to adopt them so that they become your default day in, day out.
1: And then what are the revolutionary health benefits that can occur when we breathe efficiently?
3: Well, you name it. Um, Our bodies are so out of balance that breathing is a very quick and effective way of getting them back into balance. And when our bodies are in balance, they are able to heal themselves. Our bodies are trying to heal themselves every single day but because of our lifestyles, they aren't able to do that. So we can get by for a while, constantly running on empty, but eventually at a certain time, our bodies are gonna break down. And that's what you're seeing throughout our populations right now. I mean, look at, you've got 60% of the population is overweight, 40% is obese, 10% have has asthma, 15% has chronic sinusitis, 10% has diabetes, I mean, on and on and on um this isn't normal and our ancestors did not have these issues that we're contending with and and we know that so many of them are modern problems so i'm not saying breathing is going to fix everything for everybody I would never say that but it is as important as what you eat and how much you exercise so if you are still breathing dysfunctionally and you're eating right and you're exercising all the time your body, your body still is not going to be able to properly heal itself. We see that with top athletes whose bodies are breaking down because they're breathing in a dysfunctional way.
1: And your book it has been a New York times bestseller, a Sunday times bestseller. Do you think you have a receptive audience now that people are ready to hear this, that it's part of a pillar of health to breathe efficiently And correctly is as important as the food you eat and the lifestyle you you keep
3: well we're a reactionary culture right so i worked on this book for five years six years full full time and it was slated to come out on may 2020 six months before that so in september 2019 is when the date was for the book to come out How would I know that there would be a respiratory pandemic that would sweep over the entire planet, you know, Uh, and everything would be in lockdown in March? So I think when we lose something, we start to become acutely aware of it. And so many of us were at risk and still are at risk of losing our ability to breathe through this terrible virus. And I think that has made us more acutely aware of how valuable. Breathing is and how valuable healthy breathing is. What's great about this is, you know, you don't, it's not like a keto diet or paleo diet or vegan diet where you see results weeks later. When you adopt healthy breathing habits, you can see results in a matter of seconds. That's how quickly your body responds to it. And so once people experience this personally, they can start to understand how, if they adopt healthy breathing habits, how it's going to affect them in the long run.
1: Well, look. Uh, before I let you go, you literally travel the world. You speak to a whole host of of, of experts and and different stories and and different histories. Um, it, it, people should read it to 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 get them all. But could you just tell us a little bit about tummo breathing? Am I describing <laughs> that correctly?
3: Yes, you are. So, you know, that experience I was just telling you about at the beginning of the program of, of heating my body up through breathing, how impossible that sounds. Well, (laughs) it sounded really impossible to scientists as well, but all of these people in the sixties and seventies were traveling to Tibet. They were traveling to India and they were coming back with these stories of these monks who were able to sit in the snow in the middle of winter overnight wearing only a thin sheet of fabric and melt a circle around their bodies just using their breathing so dozens and dozens of stories were coming back about this and it was even written about a hundred years earlier but scientists being scientists said yeah right you know this is a bunch of new age stuff we don't believe it until herbert benson at harvard medical school went out found these monks and measured what happened to their bodies when they practiced this TUMO, this ancient breathing practice. And they were able to increase the temperature in their fingers and toes and extremities by 17 degrees Fahrenheit. And they were able to dry wet sheets placed around their bodies in a cold room within about 40 minutes minutes. You can see this on YouTube. You can read the scientific paper in Nature, which is the most esteemed scientific journal out there. So it's real stuff. So what happened to me was child's play compared to what these monks have harnessed. And it just shows when you actually go out and measure these things, you can really see the potential of the human body. And Wim Hof is a great example of this. The scientific studies done on his method And the way of breathing and exposing people to cold, it has a transformative effect on our health and our body's ability to heat itself.
1: Well, it's the kind of book that several times I had to just put it down for a moment and just take it in. It is truly mind-blowing, the power of our breath. The book is called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, and its author is James Nestor. James, thanks for talking to me today.
3: Thanks a lot for having me.
1: So that's it for live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer for this week, who was Simon Keane, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week.
0: Air Credit Card, brought to you by Bank of Ireland in partnership with Aer Lingus. Whether you're buying your weekly basics or splurging on a special gift, with Air Credit Card, you'll collect Avios and unlock even more rewards. The only credit card in Ireland that gives you travel rewards as you spend. Sign up now by searching Bank of Ireland Air Credit Card and go from tap to takeoff. Bank of Ireland. Begin. Over 18s only. Acceptance criteria, lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. Subject to a monthly fee of €7.99 and annual government stamp duty of €30. Euro. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.